I invite you into my inbox for a few moments to an email that I got this week that is not a unique email. In fact, I would say if there's any categories of buckets of emails that you might get or a pastor might get in the course of a week, this is becoming more and more a common, common theme that I am having to address, getting to address as a pastor. This is what the email says unedited. I have an issue I'm struggling with over a wedding we're invited to. I have a couple of friends and several relatives who are homosexual. So does my spouse. She has an older cousin who's getting married next month to her longtime partner. We have a great relationship with them. They know where we stand on the issue. Do I decline? Go to prove uh, I don't support the same-sex marriage? Or do I make an appearance and, and stay the family drama? We have always spent time together, holidays, vacations, and relationships were never an issue. But with the onslaught of the LGBT attacks on the Christian faith, I'm really not sure what to do. This is not an easy email to receive, to read, to process through, or to respond to. But why that percolates in your mind, let me give you another scenario. This scenario happened to my family in that one of our children were in school and they were given a creative writing assignment and given the challenge to write on anything that they wanted to write on. And our child chose to write on a Bible story, a biblical account that they believed was true, and to give a class report on that topic. Whenever they submitted the topics of what they were going to be able to speak on, this our child turned in this topic and said, this is what I would like to write on, this is what I'd like to report on, of which the teacher responds back, you can't do that one. You can't write and you can't report in class on that one, of which the child comes home and tells mom and dad, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? Well, how do you respond to a situation like that? Totally different circumstances, totally different situation, totally different even topics. But yet it points to a pivotal time. Lori ends up talking to the teacher, talking to the uh, her uh, mother herself and said, why is it that my child can't do this topic? To which she responded in one word, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about faith, to talk about where you believe and what you believe. Listen, we're living in, we're not living in Ozzie and Harriet time any longer. We're living in modern family in South Park, uh, uh, reality show that we're living in these days. It is not an easy culture in which to live, to have beliefs, to have values, to have morals along a, a biblical line. Where and how do you respond in such a time and such a situation as this? And I think it's a question that we're all dealing with. And if you're not dealing with it, I promise you, you will be dealing with it either vicariously through your children or in your own job. It is incredible the things that we can and cannot do in our culture. And how do we respond to that? That's really what I want to wrestle with today. But I want to introduce a couple of different options to you because really there are several options and probably you can make your own list. One is you can do nothing. Just abstain. Just be passive. Just go over and kind of let, let bygones be bygones. Ignore it. Just go with the flow. That may work. It may not work as well. When you look at our history of the church or Christians being passive, it's not proven very well. 
Nazi Germany, the church was silent as Nazism rose up. They were passive about it. Whenever you look at apartheid in South Africa, the church was silent and, and did not do anything to stand in front of apartheid. Racism in the South, across America even, the church was silent and even at times condoned it. But when there's an injustice, what do we do? Do we just take a passive approach? I don't think that's an option. I don't think that's the best example of what we're called to be, salt and light in a community. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be a tension. There will be people who like us and not like us. But we don't have to create enemies. So how do you live in that tension? So there's another approach. You can protest it. You can look at examples of of churches out there or people out there who protest. They stand up aggressively. They call for a Christian nation, and we're a Christian nation in this Hey, Christian nations never have existed. Nations don't become Christians. Individuals become Christians. Individuals are transformed. Individuals are changed. And it's through the individual life change that we see countries change. Righteousness exalts a nation, the scriptures speak of. Well, that's going to be not the righteousness of the nation, but the righteousness of the people in the nation that will make a nation great. So how do we stand up and how do we speak out against it? Because they'll point back to our founding fathers and this and that. And I get it. But when you look at Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, he denied the deity of Christ and shredded the New Testament for his lack of belief in it. So you do have some good examples. You have some not so good examples. So you can't really bake on that. Though you can look across America and you can look back in time and you can say, okay, the United States, when it founded, one of the things it brought, it brought not only the, the, the new nation, or the, the, the new England uh, to, to, our, to the shores of America, it also brought churches. In fact, whenever you look back in, even before the founding of, a, of our country up in, the, up in New England, that there, were one, there was one church for every 606 people. But you turn the millennium and you find that there's one church for 909 people across America today. Yet we believe that the best way to bless a community is to start a church. So you can see how our nation is moving further and further away from the church. And this is a difficult time, and how do we address it and all this kind of stuff? Because really, when you look at from a religious faith, from a Christian faith kind of perspective, we're not getting much better. In fact, Pew Research has done a number of studies over, over several years. In 2007, they did a study. They compared 2007's with 2014's study, and they found this, that the only faith that's growing is atheism and the unaffiliated. Christianity's not growing, Catholicism is not growing, mainline Protestants is not growing, but everything that is not faith and is not affiliated with the church is growing. Welcome to the world called post-Christendom, where the world, America, is moving away, has left the church, we've been expelled from the schools, we've been excommunicated, if you will, from the city council meetings, we're not invited to the conversations any longer. I ask you the question again, what are we to do? How do we respond in a, in a time, in a place like this in which we live? Well, the good thing is we have an example. We have an example in a man named Jesus. I know Jesus is always the answer, right? Well, Jesus is the answer again today because Jesus grew up on the margins. He grew up, came in on the margins. He was not in the mainstream. He was not in the center. It wasn't that he came in on the scene after a nation was totally transformed or a country was transformed or people were following his, 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 his way. 
He came in as a renegade. He came in as a rogue. He came in starting a new path, a new path to truth and life and peace and love. He came in. He, uh, he, he ventured into that. So I want to introduce you to the incarnational model where we do as Jesus did. We are as Jesus is. We would live a life that Jesus would live. As he lived in the first century, how can we live it in the 21st century? And the challenge is for us. As it was when Soren Kierkegaard made this statement, Christ's whole life in all its aspects must supply the norm. Now, I just emphasize that if you're jotting down quotes, jot this one down, that Christ's whole life in all aspects must supply the norm, the standard by which for the life of the following Christian and thus for the life of the whole church. So if Christ is the norm, what does that look like? Push pause on that for just a moment because when you come to church, you probably hear several things. You hear go, you hear do, you hear be, you hear, you hear all this kind of stuff. And I want to talk about each one of those. Let's talk about go for a moment because when you come to Grace Point, you hear about go a lot. Well, the Bible does say go and make disciples of all nations. We value that. We were founded by Lori and I moving back from going to Africa and coming back to America to start a church. We're celebrating this year in June, on June 5th, we're going to be celebrating our 15th birthday as a church. So there's going to be lots of different things. You're going to start seeing things kind of out in the lobby and happening around, kind of preparing us for that June 5th day. So just kind of put that on your calendar. It's going to be a pretty big day. But one of the things that we're celebrating is what is represented in this jar. In this jar is a bunch of marbles. I won't tell you how many marbles. This is what you're, you're supposed to guess. There's paper down here. People have already been putting in their guesses to how many marbles are in here. Each one of these marbles represents somebody in our church who's been commissioned. I'm losing my marbles. <laughs> who's been commissioned from our church for two weeks, for two years, for months. And these marbles represent somebody somewhere going to New Orleans to help with Katrina relief, to go to Joplin to help with with Joplin tornado relief, or to go to West Africa, or to go to Zambia, or somewhere in the world. And this represents somebody from our church. How many people have we commissioned? Think about that. We are about a going church, but I want to take the topic of go, and I want to put it on the side. Another thing we talk about is do. Paul told young Timothy in his pastoring of the church of Ephesus, he says, I want you to do the work of an evangelist. Do. An evangelist is is a proclaimer of good news. So we're going to be the ones who are the proclaimers of the good news. Do the work of an evangelist. Whenever we next this Friday night host the foster parents night out, we're going to be doing the work of an evangelist because we're going to be showing good news, love, embracing families. Some don't go to church. Some do go to church. Some go here. Some don't go here. We're going to be loving on kids who have come from a broken situation, stories that you and I would, would blush at or be angry at. And we're going to get to love on them. And you're going to be the ones who are doing the ministry. We're a doing church. We even have a phrase around here. Every member is a minister and every ministry is meaningful. We think you can't become a member of Grace Point Church until you're ready to do, until you're ready to take on a ministry. You're not ready, okay? You'll hear that. But I also want you to hear before that, go, do, be. And it really should happen in this order, be, do, go. 
be. The being is what we have got to become. It's the essence of who we are as an individual. It's, it's the makeup. It's our ingredients. Who are you? Not just what do you do and where do you go and where have you gone, but who are you? And that, I think, holds the answer to the question, what are we going to do in a culture where it is walking away from our values and faith? How are we to be in this culture? Let me read again Kierkegaard. Christ's whole life in all its aspects must supply the norm for the life of, of the following Christian. And the whole church, the whole church. So every one of us should be looking at and into the life of Christ. And how does that, how does that change? How does that affect? How does that work? Take your Bibles and look at, we'll be looking at John chapter 1 today. John uh, writes all of his writings towards the end of the first century. He didn't write any of them until then, but he starts writing at the end. He gets in the gospel of John. He writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He writes all his letters to the to the churches in the book of Revelation. So he's a very influential person, but the pen doesn't hit the papyrus until the end of his, uh, towards the end of the, of, the, um, of the first century. He's one of the last ones to kind of compile his narrative of the gospel. We're going to be reading from the prologue of the gospel, John, uh, John chapter 1. One person had called it an overture to an opera. Now, I've never gone to an opera, and I don't know an overture is, but it sure sounds impressive. All right, so we're going to read the overture to an opera, if you will, when you look at the life uh, of John or as he points us to the life of Christ. And so follow along as I read, in, beginning in, in verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He gives a parenthetical statement here. He draws in John the Baptist to point out that even John the Baptist knew who Jesus was and points to Jesus as being God. He said, John bore witness about him, him being Jesus, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So even John the Baptist said, Jesus existed before me. He's greater than me. He's God. Verse 16, we pick up back with Jesus. And from the fullness and from his fullness, we'll come back to that in a moment, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Now, I love this next statement. He uses the word exegete in, this next, in, in the Greek language. It means to translate. He has made him known. Jesus is the one who explains, who exegetes who God is. You want to understand who God is? Look at Jesus. So we understand who God is? Let's look, look back at verse 14. Verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son, the unique Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when I look at this passage, I see a manifestations of God in Jesus. 
And when I see Jesus coming on the scene, he's coming on the scene to, to a people who are, who are immoral. I can't, I can't even go into the Roman culture and all the immorality of the Roman culture and the deity worship and the temple prostitutes and temple Diane. I, I, I can't, it's, it's grotesque if I were to go into, he comes into that culture. He comes into a culture that's frayed and disenfranchised and certainly not in, in the mood for a new faith or religion out there. And certainly not a, a brand or a, or a faction of the Judeus, Jewish faith. So he comes in a very hostile situation. Welcome to our world. Welcome to our world. How do we deal with that? How do we function in this? And I see what I want to call a trifecta here. Tri meaning three, fecta meaning perfection, a perfect example. Three elements, not not one perfect, but three parts that make up this perfect expression of incarnational Jesus. And if we can learn from incarnational Jesus, that perfect expression in three different ways, then I believe we can be on our way to at least being like Jesus in a culture that doesn't look like Jesus, that doesn't even maybe like the church. So how can we do that? There's three things. There's three manifestations. One is be missional. Be missional. I know it's a buzzword. I'm going to use a lot of buzzwords in here today, but I'm going to try to bring some definitions, some biblical backing to the whole thing. Where do you work? Where do you live? Where do you learn? Where do you play? What do you do for hobbies? What clubs are you a part of? What teams are you a part of? Where do you live out your life day to day? Guess what? That may be the very place that God wants you to be and live and breathe and eat and sleep on mission. Mission is not just loading up and going around the world. Missions is right where you are, fully engaged where you are. Dallas Willard said it like this, Jesus teaches you to live your life as he would live your life. So if Jesus were living your life in your skin, are you living the Jesus life? Okay, Mike, develop this a little bit further. Well, notice what he said in verse 14. And he dwelt among us. He dwelt among them. He put on flesh. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. What a statement. Don't skip over that. He dwelt among us. It literally in a translation, the literal translation means he pitched his tent among us. He moved into the neighborhood. In fact, that's what one translation or the paraphrase says. He moved into the neighborhood. Another one said he took up residence among us. Don't skip over that. Do you realize the address that you live at, the zip code you live in, the, the cubicle you, you work from or the school desk that you teach from or, or the hospital table that you work at? you realize that God may put you there? Put you there for a reason? I, I know maybe God didn't orchestrate it in your mind, but maybe he orchestrated it in your time. He put you there in all of his sovereignty. Because when you think about Jesus, where did he live? Where did he go when he came to this earth? Did he go to Caesarea? Caesarea would have been a great place to live. It was a Roman city. It was established by Rome. It was where, it was where all the muckety-mucks of Rome would come and stay and live. It was a palace right on the ocean, a beautiful city. It was there just a few weeks ago. Caesarea would be a great place for the God of all the universe to come and set up shop, if you will. He didn't live there. 
Neither did he go and live at the seashore of Tiberias, a thriving city, a young town, a city right on the shores of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. He didn't move there. He moved to this little place in the hills between the two called Nazareth. Now, just to give you a picture of what Nazareth was like, it wasn't this beautiful upcoming city. It was fact, in fact, it was the hood. It was not the place where you wanted to go. In fact, Nathaniel, when they learned, when Nathaniel learned that Jesus was from Nazareth, this is the question that he asked. He said, does anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that town had a reputation. And Jesus was living in that town. You talk about living strategically. You talk about moving into the hood. You talk about going to a place where you are going to intentionally go there, live and breathe and be, be, be the Son of God? You ever thought about moving and living and being in a place that you might be the incarnational expression of Christ? You might be the only incarnational expression of Christ. Clement, in the second century, early church father, documents in, in his writings that the early believers would literally sell themselves into slavery and go and live among the slaves so that they could be Jesus there. How many people do you know selling themselves into slavery? One of the things I found in the research for my book was a church that was incredible. It's just one of the churches I studied in. And they've done an incredible job. They've, they've, they've taken their members and they've said, okay, every one of you are supposed to live on mission, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever you're gifted in, whatever your talents are, wherever you work, live, play, learn, wherever you are, you're supposed to be living on mission. Okay, what does that look like? So what they did is they took categories, they created buckets, and they said, okay, how many of y'all are in the agriculture? And how many of y'all are, are, are in medicine? And how many of y'all are in economics? And how many of y'all are stay-at-home people, uh, work, work out of home? Domestic engineers, I think that's the correct way to say that. Uh, justice and art. And they just took all these categories, and they said, okay, now we're going to help mobilize you and equip you to live on mission for God in the domains in which you live and work and play. Beautiful thing happened. One of the things that this church did is they identified a, a people group and a nation, a far-off land, a communist country that was closed to the gospel, that you couldn't get a visa, a visa as a missionary to go in to, to this country. And, and what they did is they developed a relationship with the education board of that country. And they started pouring into that country's education. They found that there was no educational curriculum for special needs in their country. So all the teachers in this one church began to write curriculum for special needs children. And guess what they were able to do? They were able to go into this closed communist country and to teach the teachers how to educate children with special needs. They took their skills, they took their calling, they took where God had equipped them and had shaped their passions, their life experiences, and they used it for the glory of God, strategically realizing that they could live and be missional wherever and whatever God had called them to. See, some of y'all are living a great career. You know what career comes from? It comes from a, from a Latin word. The etymology of the word, I looked it up this week, the etymology of the word is running a course. Some of y'all are living a career and you're running a course and you're wore out. You slide in here and you're wasted every week. 
because you're tired, because you're running a course. And you get up and tomorrow will come around and you will run another course and you will run another course. And you have been living a career and career hopping and moving and all that. But you know, there's another word that we would see in the English language as a synonym to that word. It's the word vocation. Also look at the etymology of that word this week. It's a French word, 15th century. It means a calling. It means a consecration. I would hope that some of you today would have a rebirth in your careers to a calling by God, placed by God, to work among a people maybe far from God, to be Christ in that culture. We haven't even said a word yet. You've just had a change of attitude. You've just had a change of perspective. And now when you go to work tomorrow, work, you go to your career tomorrow, no, you're going to go to your vocation tomorrow. And God's going to use you where you're at. I love it that uh, Summit Church out in Raleigh-Durham, pastor there has challenged this church largely of college students to, to, to see themselves as, as potentially on mission with God wherever they may be. And they have this statement, whatever you do, do it well to the glory of God. And I love this next statement, and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. What if your company moved you to China? Could you see yourself as, as a missionary? What if God just moved you across town into another neighborhood? Do you see yourself as a missionary sent from God? Be missional wherever God places you. Number two, be attractional. I know this is a buzzword again, and I, I want to hang on to this word because I think we need to have a revision of Jesus, and we need to understand Jesus maybe a little bit better in light of who he really is. And the church for a lot, for a lot is out of date. It speaks a language that they don't know. They sing 15th century songs and they read out of a 1611 translation and they sit on hard benches called pews and, and they, they wonder why people are leaving. And, and it's like the church is so unattractive and they're talking down to them and instead of talking with them. And it's, it's this disconnect. We need to be people who in our culture are attractive to the people around us. Now, what does that mean? How, how, does that, how do we see that in the life of Jesus? You see that in, in verse 14 again. He says that we have seen his glory. I like that phrase. The glory, he says it twice. The glory of the only Son of, from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The word glory there is a very pivotal word there because it actually means the substance. It means the density. It means if God had a label of ingredients on him and you were to look at the ingredients of God, what would you see? What would you find on the label? You would find grace and you would find truth. And I can tell you right now, we're all drawn to grace. We all need grace every day of our life. We all need that attractive element. We need to be, as followers of Christ, dispensers of grace to where the world looks at us and they know they may not, they may not like everything about me, but they love me. They may not tolerate my sins or my habits or my hang-ups, but they accept me. We've talked about this. There is a huge difference, and the huge difference builds bridges. Here's what one church out in Denver put in their bulletin. Somebody captured it. I read it, and here it is. 
married, divorced, or single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative or liberal here. We've all gotten, we've all got to give a little here. Big or small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt or believe here, we all can receive here. Gay or straight here, there's no hate here. Women or man, woman or man here, everyone can serve here. In in imitation of a ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us here, let us live and love without labels here. See, the church is a bunch of broken people not propped up with a facade, but a bunch of broken people who can be real, can be broken. And listen, you may not agree with me and I may not agree with you and I may not like this about you and you may not like this about me. But because we give grace, because we extend grace, and hey, well, how much is too much grace? If you look at verse 16, I, I like the way he's, he said it. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So when you run out of grace, guess what? There's more grace there. What if we become full-on dispensers of the grace of God? I think we'd be a changed church. We'd be an attractive church. And people truly knew that this was a place of grace. Larry Crabb said in his book, Shattered Dreams, the church is too often a place of pretense and therefore a place without hope. And just listen to that phrase. Are you pretentious, fake, not real, not quiet? Think about it. When brokenness is disdained, where no real story is never told, where the real story is never told, the power of God is not felt, but where brokenness is invited and received with grace, the gospel comes alive with hope. I want us to be a place of grace that dispenses grace. Listen, we don't all have to be on the same page all the time, but man, if we can come and land on grace, that's a good place to build a bridge. Like, oh, this is just a libertarian kind of church. Listen to the next phrase. You want to look at the ingredients of God? You'll see that he's not only full of grace, but he's also full of truth. The truth element you can't get away from. We need to be truth in our community. We need to live truth. We need to be full of truth. It doesn't mean truth shoved down your throat. Listen, being missional is a part of us moving in to mess, moving into brokenness, moving into life out there and realizing that they're all going to look like us, smell like us, and act like us. But while we're there, let's go ahead and dispense some grace. Let's give grace. Let's show grace. Let's honor people with grace. Let's show that they're valued through grace. Let's also be truth. Let's model truth. Let's champion truth. See, truth, hear this, truth informs and it transforms. It informs and it transforms all we are and all that we do. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth the life. No one comes to the Father about me. He declares himself to be true. It's a part of the ingredients of who he is.
He even prays the high priestly prayer and he prays, sanctify them the truth. Thy word is truth. Truth is absolutely woven in the fabric of who Jesus is. Grace is woven into the fabric of who Jesus is. You can't get away, but yeah, they seem like their tension might be there and might exist. And the beauty of, of truth and grace and how they fit together is grace embraces, but truth calls you to a higher level, to a higher plane, to a better life. Out of the brokenness, out of the hypocrisy, even Paul, whenever he was writing the church of Galatia, he calls Peter out, calls him Caiaphas in the passage, but in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step, calls them out. The gospel, the truth, it's offensive. It calls us out. Not in step with the truth of the gospel. Gospel and truth are heads and tails of the same coin. There's a lot written about gospel. Again, another buzzword that's out there. Some people make gospel everything. The problem with that is it's confusing. Everything is not the gospel. Even Keller has a chapter in his book, Center Church, on that very thing. It's not everything. But what it is, it's very clear and it's penetrating and it's, and it's confronting us at times. It's calling us to a better life, to a higher life. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.1. And Paul said, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. I mean, it's everything that he's going to say. Then the next phrase, I delivered to you. That's the first importance. What I also received. Here's the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? Christ died. He's buried. And he rose again. Now, some people have a, a definition of the gospel. It's a paragraph long. No, Jesus died. He buried. And he rose again. And how that affects you. That's truth affecting you. How does that reality, that, how does that inform you? How does that transform you? Let me, let me tell you my week, okay? I'm going to put myself out there. Like a big old matzo ball. I'm going to put myself out there. So this week, and it was not a fun exercise, but I just went back and looked at my life, starting at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right on through the week. Here's, here's sins in my life that the gospel called me out on. A time that I got a little angry. Said something I shouldn't have said. It was an attitude. It was an attitude in me that I had to confess. Had an impure thought that emerged from within me. There was nothing I saw. There was no website I went to. nothing that I had a conversation. It was just an image. Just a thought that came to my mind. Jesus talks about that being an issue of the heart inside of me. An emotion of self-pity. There was something that happened. I thought, well, why didn't I get that? Why didn't I? So it was a self-pity me, which then turned to envy. All of that was a lethal cocktail of pride just brewing inside of me. Then there was an image. It was not good. It was in a movie. And it dwelt in my mind. I had to... Put that to God. Not good, not right. Friday night, I struggled with the idolatry of materialism. Went shopping for a few things and just wanted more and wanted more and wanted more. You think, Michael, why, why, why are you listing all this off? Because here's what happens. When I live the incarnational life, as much as truth confronts the people in my life, it also confronts me. It also calls me out. 
It also calls me up to a higher and more noble life. See, the beauty of an incarnational life is that I am missional, is that I am grace. Hopefully the same content that makes up Jesus makes up me. And hopefully I am truth. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to yield my life to truth. And I hope when you look at Grace Point and you experience it, that you will experience the Jesus incarnation. One church in California I was at had a banner. I wish I'd thought of it. wish I could have put it up. This is what it said. Come as you are, but don't leave as you came. And that's what I hope happens every Sunday. I hope that every time you encounter Jesus, you'll come as you are, but you will not leave as you came. I hope every time you come in and you're a part of Grace Point, you will come as you are. Don't feel like you have to pretend. Don't feel like you have to clean up before you come in. Don't got to fix this problem in your life first. Then I can go to church. No, no, no. Come broken. Let your mess mix with my mess. Let God's truth filter into your life. Would you bow your heads with me? The call to live a Jesus life is a call to to move into your neighborhoods, wherever you work, live, play, whatever you do, wherever you do what you do. It's a call to, to allow grace to filter in and through and all the parts of who you are and and then allow truth. We don't like truth. Truth confronts. Truth calls us to change, calls us to a new standard. But let truth speak to you wherever truth needs to speak to you. I want to pray right now, and I want to pray that if you're not a part of Grace Point, that's okay. You're welcome here. But I want to, I want to pray for my family. I want to pray for my Grace Point family that we will be Jesus. That we'll be Jesus in Northwest Arkansas. That we'll be Jesus in our neighborhoods and we'll be Jesus on our team. And that when people talk about Jesus, they say, yes, I know one of those Jesus people. And they'll think of you. And they go, why are you excluding the people who are not a part? I want to pray that you will find that church that will call you up and call you out. If you're not from here, go home and you find a place that will call you up and call you out and it will embrace you and love you. Father God, you know our hearts, you know where we're at. Thank you for being grace and truth. Thank you for not being a, an arm's length God, keeping us at arm's length because we're not quite good enough to be with you, even though we're not good enough to be with you, Lord. You came to us. You moved into our hood. You didn't get behind a palace in Caesarea and you didn't find a scenic view along the Sea of Galilee. You came to us. And Lord, we want to go into our communities and we want to be Jesus. I pray Grace Point will be a place where people can become like you more and more each and every day. That may mean change. It will mean change. Changing to truth 
the gospel truth that our life would align there. Lord, we bless you and we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us? Let this be a time where you reflect on your own relationship and walk with God and ask yourself, am I full of grace and full of truth?